Hey, my name is Pat Cook, and you have tuned in to Zombies au Fromage of Terror and Terroir, the podcast featuring the unlikely combination of the undead and cheese. On this podcast, we review a zombie movie, old ones and new ones alike, and we choose a cheese to pair the movie with. Not every zombie flick is Oscar-worthy, to be sure, but they can be creative, imaginative, prophetic, and clever. Well, have we ever got a doozy for you today. We climbed into the Wayback Machine and landed in some time in the late 1950s, when teenagers were wild, carefree, pleasant, harmless, and remarkably valuable in saving the country. In today's episode of Zombies au Fromage, of Terror and Terroir, we review the ridiculous movie Teenage Zombies. This flick has stepped into the realm of public domain, so it's fairly easy to find. You can watch it for free on YouTube or on Amazon Prime as well as in a dozen other locations, likely. The copyright date in the credits indicates that it was made in 1957, but it apparently didn't break loose until 1959. Perhaps it should never have gotten free at all. To be honest, this was not an easy movie for me to watch. There are some things that are hard for me to watch. The first five minutes of the Disney Pixar movie Up, the last 15 minutes of the Toy Story 3, the last 10 minutes of Big Fish, the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. These scenes grip me to the core and render me helpless. What movies grip your emotions? Let me know at zombiesofromage at gmail.com. This movie, though, well, it elicited a different set of emotions. I watched this Drek twice to prepare for this episode. 140 minutes of my life that I'll never get back. That said, you could make a case for the movie being so bad it's good. There's the famous movie widely known as the worst movie ever made, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Some movies deserve to be made fun of, and because of that, they're fun to watch. Think of any movie that gets the Mystery Science Theater 3000 treatment. You're familiar with MST3K, right? This guy and his robot companions watch cheesy, real movies, and they make wisecrack remarks as they suffer through them. The movies are notoriously bad. Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, Mac and Me, Gamera, and then The Final Sacrifice, you know, the one with the unlikely hero named Zap Rousdower. Shudder. And yet, listening to characters on screen making fun of the outrageous plot or the dreadful dialogue or the horrid special effects, well, it's kind of redemptive, in a way, bringing good out of a painful situation. In my research, I use a couple of books. I use one book called Zombie Movies, The Ultimate Guide by Glenn Kay. It's a pretty exhaustive book, and the author rates movies on a scale of 1 to 5, with cute icons. 
A smiling zombie eating brains means highly recommended. An undead thumb rising from the grave means recommended. An unpleasant zombie impaled on a pole means at your own risk. A headshot means avoid at all costs. And a laughing zombie means so bad it's good. Glenn gave this movie the last rating, meaning it's great stuff for fans of bad cinema. Well, it certainly is bad. If you haven't seen it, go ahead now and check it out. If you'd rather not watch it, just listen to my rantings about it, well, fine, I'll take one for the team. But I'd really rather use the words of Clark W. Griswold, Oh, we're all in this together. So go, watch it, and then come back. Okay, so a guy named Jerry Warren directed this thing. He also did such horror classics as Invasion of the Animal People, Terror of the Blood Hunters, Attack of the Mayan Mummy, Curse of the Stone Hand, Face of the Screaming Werewolf, Creature of the Walking Dead, and House of the Black Death. He had a style, obviously. He was a former actor who had become wealthy in his filmmaking exploits. What he did was this. He went to producers, and he used the wild and exciting titles of his films to secure the funding for the project. He then made the films on super tight budgets and gained a healthy profit for himself. According to Glenn Kay, he also bought Mexican films, re-edited them, and inserted new scenes with American actors. He released these movies into U.S. theaters, and so was able to put out a lot of movies quickly and cheaply, all the while not worrying too much about quality. The movie starts in a 1950s diner. Think Pop's Chocolate Shop from the old Archie comics. That's not a bad analogy because the teenagers live in an Archie-esque world. There are three couples of good-looking actors who poorly acted their roles. The girls are rarely more than eye candy in underdeveloped roles. They're sipping each other's milkshakes and the dialogue is drab. Do teenagers ever talk that way? It's a carefree life. So two of the couples, Reg and Pam and Skip and Julie, decide they want to go out in the boat belonging to Reg. They enjoy water skiing, but they heard a rumor about an island away off, about 30 miles or so to the east, called Mullet Island, and they want to go exploring. Well, I don't own a boat, but I've been on the ocean hundreds of times, and that's not an exaggeration. I grew up on an island where the only way off or on was a ferry. I helped with a kayak business for two summers on the open water. I've been whale watching, puffin watching, and island hopping. I grew up with a view of the Atlantic Ocean out of my bedroom window. So I know what the ocean is, and I know what it can do. So these teenagers head out on an island, head out to an island, I should say, 30 miles away, in a 15-foot skiff powered by an outboard motor. I don't think that they were wearing life jackets either. I shudder at how unsafe it was. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was the 1950s. It was a different time. Still... I think that people knew about drowning some 60 years ago, and they knew how to stop it from happening. Plus, they didn't really tell people where they were going. So, as a public service announcement, kids, if you're listening, tell people where you're going and wear life jackets. You should take some water with you, too. But if you're really lucky, you'll meet a weird stranger on a weird island who offers you a soft drink. But I get ahead of myself. 
So, two couples go water skiing, while one couple, Maury and Dottie, goes horseback riding, of all things. The water skiers end up on the island and they go exploring. By now, we're 3 minutes 35 seconds in. There is lots of time wasted later in the movie, but they get going pretty fast. When they explore the island, they see men walking mindlessly in a line. We find out later that they're drunks or criminals, but for now, all we know is that they are not behaving regularly. It's as if they're in some sort of trance, drug-like trance, maybe. We never see them again, actually. A well-dressed woman comes out as well, and she spots the four nosy teenagers. They run because they don't like the looks of all this. They arrive at the beach where they had tied up the boat, and the boat was gone. In fact, it's never seen again, even at the end of the movie, when they ask the nice law enforcement people to help them get the boat back. So it's not really a dropped plot line, it, but it's just never really resolved either. The two boys in the group head back into the interior of the island and find the woman's house. The dialogue is so stilted and drawn out it's hard to listen to. The woman, some well-dressed mad scientist, offers them soda pop and sandwiches from her kitchen. She also says that no one ever leaves the island because there's no need to. Which is crazy, because can we assume she has a soda pop factory on this island? That her well-stocked kitchen always stays that way? Ah, don't bother the plotline with trivial details. We have a movie to make. So, the four teens eventually get captured. Maury, the horse-riding buddy, and his girl realize that their friends have been gone for a long time. The sheriff, in an unnecessarily long scene, goes looking for them, but doesn't find them. Maury steals a boat from the dock and finds the island. As he's leaving, he sees two suspicious-looking guys arriving on the island in their own boat. Awkward and prolonged glares are exchanged among all the people. It's a very odd scene, just staring at each other. And you would think that maybe somebody should have done something at that point, but no, nobody does anything. And Maury returns home. So we find out who these two guys are, kinda. They're from some foreign power in the East. Well, that narrows it down. They're scheming to subdue the world by tampering with the water supply. If they can render the entire population of a country to be docile, mindless, and obedient, they could rule the nation. We discover this strange, almost irrelevant, but completely unnecessary plotline where a supposed double agent was running away from the mission and he ended up dead. Now the feds are onto them, and they have to hurry. But mad scientist lady, Dr. Myra, has only had fair to middling success with her experiments. With the exception of one, Ivan, her evil henchman, subjects have become either too dopey to be useful or too violent. So, she's going to hurry the experiment along because now she has four more human subjects to tamper with. <laughs> and there's a weird scene with a gorilla. Yes, I said gorilla. The gas is tested out on the gorilla, but honestly, it's hard to tell how that turned out. The the cutscenes are are just not good in the special effects, and it's hard to see. It should be noted that for the sake of this movie, zombie doesn't mean returning from the dead or eating human flesh. Those sorts of ideas for zombies came about a decade later. Up until Night of the Living Dead in 1968, 
Zombies were simply people under a trance or a spell. Inspired by Haitian tales of supernatural powders and potions and witchcraft. I quote from history.com. Zombie folklore has been around for centuries in Haiti, possibly originating in the 17th century when West African slaves were brought in to work on Haiti's sugarcane plantations. Brutal conditions left the slaves longing for freedom. According to some reports, the life, or rather afterlife, of a zombie represented the horrific plight of slavery. Peter Dendel, author of the zombie movie Encyclopedia, says this. At the climax... Pam and Julie are only zombies for three minutes, and since the women are only background figures throughout the movie anyway, their zombie state isn't much of a difference. Ouch. It's too bad that all zombie plagues couldn't be cured as easily as this one. Just drinking some antidote and boom, all is well. No side effects or anything. Whew. Crisis averted. What is also averted is a sense of importance, of danger, of mystery, or of horror. One notable event in the movie is the fight scene. It's long. Glenn Kay calls it an awkward fight scene that looks like a game of Twister gone horribly wrong. Three teen boys versus two grown men, one gun among them all, and a teen girl fighting the mad scientist lady. It's a nutso scene that lasts an interminable minute and a half. And did I mention the plot twist? The unhelpful sheriff was, surprise, part of it all along supplying the drunks and criminals for the nefarious experiments. He was not happy about the testing on the teenagers because, in his words, they have families that want to find them. <laughs> That's funny, because we never meet them. As far as we know, Maury and Dottie were the only two people in town who actually cared that the other four teens were missing. It's bizarre. Finally, in the less-than-thrilling climax, the gorilla slurps some of the antidote to the zombie toxin and inadvertently rescues the teens from the evildoers. You know, for a movie that actually contains a gorilla, you would think that this would be more exciting. Nope. Just a few observations about the movie. It contains such stellar dialogue as Look, what kind of a creep joint is this? And Quiet, you fool! Given the stilted dialogue, I really was expecting some quippy conversation like Poisoning the water supply to make a nation full of mindless, obedient slaves. That's quite a plan, Dr. Myra. Yes, and I would have gotten away with it, too, if it hadn't been for those snoopy teenagers. Uh, another thing from the movie that reminded me of old TV shows. You remember the old Spider-Man cartoons from the 1960s? If you remember, some of the episodes were short, like 11 or 12 minutes. As the series went on, Ralph Bakshi, a famous animator, took creative control of the series and the atmosphere of the show changed. The episodes went twice as long. The villains were no longer consistently from the comics, and the stories dealt with bizarre subject matter like Dementia 5, Pardo, Blotto, and Thunder Rumble. Anyway, the episodes of seasons 2 and 3 often showed long stretches of nothing. Swinging, 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 jumping down, maybe running to more swinging. And what Spidey was attaching his webs to, I have no idea, but he was doing it. Well, this movie also had long stretches of nothing. Walking along the shore, 
riding around in the speedboat, more walking along the shore, watching the zombie Ivan lumber across the screen. Ugh! 70 minutes long, and it could have cut another 15 minutes without sacrificing plot or action. Our facepalm moment, when a character does something stupid and changes the fate of the people around him or her, well, take your pick. Last episode, episode 3, Pontypool, had no real good facepalm moment, but I think I can make up for it this time. Gee, let me think. Going that far away in a small speedboat? That's a big one. The guys letting Ivan take the girls? Why did they even do that? What did I miss? Let me know at zombiesofromage at gmail.com. How about this one? The sheriff turning his back on people he just double-crossed. Not nice people either. Shady underworld types that use people as test subjects for biological weapons. And you say, I'm not going to let this happen. And you turn your back on them. Uh, dumb. The whole movie was one big mistake after another. All right, Vince. Hit him in the head. Right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay, he's dead. Well, now it's time for the gotcha. That best kill. Well, I only saw one kill, and that was the sheriff, and that really wasn't a shock or anything fun. But the most entertaining attack, I guess, was the gorilla. Getting all wild-like against one of the bad guys. I'm glad the gorilla came back around. He really would have made for a more interesting movie if he had had more of a prominent role. I get a kick out of the promotional taglines used. Such overhype, such ridiculous hyperbole. A fiendish experiment performed with sadistic horror. Young pawns thrust into pulsating cages of horror in a sadistic experiment. See teenage girls thrust into the weird pulsating cage of horror. And speaking of weird... It's time to pair a cheese with this crazy movie. I considered going in the direction of, well, what cheese goes well with banana in honor of the gorilla. I didn't really find any strong connections other than something that needed to be cooked, and that's not really the point of this podcast. But without overthinking it, what is a kind of cheese that a lot of people think is weird? Blue cheese. So, I have before me a plate of blue Stilton cheese. Maybe you're not familiar with Stilton. It's British, made only in certain counties. It's velvety smooth. It's closed textured, which means that it doesn't have holes in it like Swiss cheese. On the inside, it's whitish, ivory, and it's marbled with uh, greenish blue veins. Its rind is dry, crusty, grayish brown, kind of wrinkled, and it has white powdery patches which makes it look as if it's gone bad, but it's good. Yeah, cheeses that look bad and smell bad, but are good. How about that? That's the weird thing. I've discovered that eating blue cheese by itself is not the best way to do it. It has a strong flavor, so it's best to pair it with another strong taste. I've really come to enjoy eating a crumble of blue cheese with an apple slice and an almond. Stilton isn't as salty as some blue cheeses, but still, the sweet and the salty and the strong all jumble together. 
for a wonderful taste explosion. But blue cheese is an acquired taste and not to everyone's liking, much like teenage zombies. I think it's an appropriate pairing. So enjoy an apple slice and an almond and my Stilton. interesting combination of textures the smooth cheese the light crunch of the apple and the consistent crunch of the of the almond that is really a good combination if you don't like blue cheese i understand it's an acquired taste but but uh, you're missing out on on some really interesting flavors in your mouth Our next movie is going to be Warm Bodies. It's a fairly recent movie, and it's a genre-bending flick as it deals with zombie love. I'm also going to have a special guest with me for the next episode, and we're going to discuss it together. So I'm really looking forward to that. I will leave you with a quote. It's from Donna Lynn Hope. At least with zombies, I know my enemy, and I know what to do. Aim and shoot. It's not so easy with people. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me at zombiesofromage at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Pat Cook, and I hope you fare well. Things aren't going too bad. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. You had a gun, shoot him in the head. Are they slow moving, Chief? Shoot him in the head. They're coming to get you, Barbara. They're coming to get you, Barbara. I urge you to stay tuned to radio and TV and to stay indoors. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up.